So what you hear in Seoul, similar or different from what they're saying in Tokyo? Well, I would say uh, the Koreans are more fond of Korea and less fond of Japan than the, <laughs> than the Japanese are. Um, but there's uh, in Seoul, I think the, the focus on North Korea is, is always uh, significant. And one of the things they're thinking about there is suppose there were some kind of crisis around Taiwan and the U.S. was fully engaged militarily there. What does that mean for their security with North Korea possibly doing something opportunistic? So every, everywhere you go these days, people are scratching their heads and thinking about what's coming next. Few countries have a neighbor like North Korea, so you can't really blame them. Thankfully. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody, to What Really Matters. I'm Tablet Deputy Editor Jeremy Stern with you in Los Angeles. I'm here, as always, with Walter Russell Mead, Tablet News Writer, Global View columnist at The Wall Street Journal, and Distinguished Fellow at Hudson. Let's start with this week's news. First story of the week. President Biden declared the world at an inflection point in history in an Oval Office address Thursday linking Israel's battle against Hamas to Ukraine's fight against Russia and stressing the need for the U.S. to continue funding both wars. The address came a day after Biden traveled to Tel Aviv to reaffirm U.S. support for Israel there. According to the Wall Street Journal, Biden sent Congress a wide-ranging supplemental funding request on Friday for roughly $100 billion, including at least $10 billion for Israel and $60 billion in assistance to Ukraine. So, an Oval Office address, Walter, linking for the American public the fights in Israel and Ukraine. News or phone news? Bit of both. Uh, some people have noted that that $100 billion request included only $2 billion for the Indo-Pacific. So for uh, an area that is supposed to be our strategic focus, uh, that does not seem like a, a tremendous uh, sign of commitment. But um, look, I think in some ways I'm, I'm, I'm just happy that the administration is acknowledging that these things are connected you know, as opposed to just uh, random incidents of violence here, random incidents of violence there. I'm not sure yet that they understand uh, what the connection is. That is, you know, have they looked in the mirror and said, you know what, we can't deter people anymore. People are, are not, when we tell Putin, don't invade Ukraine, he invades Ukraine. Uh, when we tell people we stand by Israel, Hamas sends hordes of terrorists across the border. And the truth is that the weakening of American deterrence is opening the door to a much more dangerous world. So I don't think that the administration has fully understood just how deep the rot in American foreign policy goes, but they've definitely, they've definitely noticed the symptoms and they're responding. And I guess we have to just say that's a good first step. All right, our second story. This one picked from the Scroll Tablet's daily afternoon newsletter. In the last several days, Iranian proxy forces have stepped up at their attacks on U.S. and Israeli targets throughout the Middle East. On Friday, two American bases in Iraq came under rocket fire. On Thursday, an American warship intercepted three missiles fired by the Iran-backed Houthi group in Yemen, believed to be aimed for Israel while Biden was physically there. And meanwhile, Iranian proxies also attacked two U.S. military targets in Syria. Also on Friday, the head of the Iranian Armed Forces, Mohammad Bagheri, 
said in a statement that U.S. aid to Israel will be considered by Iran as, quote, participation by the American government in the Zionist regime's crimes, close quote. So, Walter, are these mostly brush fires and symbolic attacks against U.S. assets, or is something far more serious and escalatory going on here, news or faux news? Well, certainly the last comment by that Iranian general is belongs in the faux news department. If the Iranians are only now considering that from their standpoint, the United States has some sort of relationship with Israel, they're a lot less clever than I give them credit for being. So I would say utter faux news, stupid propaganda, enjoy your life, sir. Uh, but then, uh, you know, the, these these attacks are obviously more serious. They underscore the point I was just making. People are not deterred by American power under the Biden administration. And because of that, we're seeing a range of provocations and attacks. Uh, and until the until this administration figures out how to change that calculus, we have to brace ourselves for more of these attacks. A related question to both of those news items and, and what you just said, I saw the Israeli defense minister told the Knesset this week something to the effect that, you know, we need the Americans for guns and ammo. So what are we supposed to do? Not listen to them? And the point I think he was making in, in, in the context of his, his remarks was that the Biden administration has been clear that it would like Israel to focus on Gaza and only on Gaza, and only insofar as there is no catastrophic humanitarian disaster or instability in Egypt. So now with these various attacks by Iranian proxies on American targets, do you get the sense the administration is trying its best to play all sides to keep a lid on things, or is it really behind Israel now as much as Biden's two speeches this week seem, seem to suggest? I think fundamentally, uh, during the Obama presidency and in the Biden term, the American policy has been to kill Israel with kindness. Now, I don't mean literally kill, but contain or limit. Uh, the, the driving force behind both Obama and Biden's policy in the Middle East is trying to do anything and everything possible to keep the United States out of a war with Iran. Now, I'm not going to say that's a bad goal. I don't want us to be in a war with Iran either. But I'm afraid that doing it in ways that limits Iran's fear of what we might do in response actually just opens the door for more provocations, more crises, and a more serious situation. So uh, I, I think in Israel they talk about this as a bear hug, uh, which in America just means a very enthusiastic hug. But I, as I understand it, Israel has the connotation of you, you're holding them really close so they can't do anything that you don't want them to do. So Biden wants his policy in America to look as pro-Israel as possible, while making sure also that Israel doesn't do anything that he thinks would be disadvantageous. Now, they're not, you know, let's be clear. In doing this, he is not in any way, shape, or form doing something that he personally thinks is bad for Israel. He thinks that limiting the confrontation and so on is in Israel's interest as well as the U.S. And, you know, one could argue for his sake that maybe Israeli politicians welcome an excuse. Public opinion there is really on fire after these attacks. Does it help them to be able to say, oh, my goodness, we would do everything you can imagine but uh, alas, our hands are tied by the United States. So I think there's a certain amount of political calculation and cynicism going on everywhere. 
but the fundamental thing is that Biden wants the boost to popularity that comes right now in the United States from being pro-Israel, but he really, really doesn't want Israel to cross some lines that he's laid down, limiting their response. All right, final story of the week, also from The Scroll. Another day, another synagogue attack. On Thursday, it was in Melilla, an autonomous Spanish city on the north coast of Africa, where a crowd of protesters gathered outside of a synagogue full of worshipers and shouted murderers until being dispersed by Spanish police. The incident came one day after an attempted firebombing of a synagogue in Berlin and three days after two Jewish primary schools were vandalized in London and an old synagogue was reduced to rubble in Tunisia. I won't ask if this is faux news, Walter, because it's obviously news at the very least for these Jewish communities, but what does it mean for Europe in particular that this kind of thing is happening? Well, you know, there's a temptation among some to say that this is all simply the work of migrant communities in Europe, and, and definitely there has been some of the tensions that, that exist in the Middle East are transferred to Europe when migrants come. But also we know that some of this is coming from ethnic Europeans. And what it tells us is that anti-Semitism is alive and well. I think somebody has used the expression every now and then, there's a flare in the night that shows you the true situation. And the, the world's reaction to the attacks in Gaza, I think, is showing us all something rather unpleasant that anti-Semitism, which was to some degree, at least in the Western world, contained by really genuine horror at what the Nazis did, that somehow as the time is passing, old taboos are wearing off and old evils are stirring once again. All right, that does it for the news this week, but we'll return to that topic momentarily in the big conversation. So the Ark of a Covenant, Walter, is in a lot of ways a deep dive into why Americans think the way they do about Israel, why this tiny country 8,000 miles away can stir up both feelings of passionate support and also impassioned hatred like few other issues can. We were just talking about anti-Semitism in Europe, but we've been seeing a lot of it in the U.S. as well the last two weeks on college campuses and newsrooms, NGOs, elsewhere. And we've also seen people who have become deeply skeptical of American militarism or even just basic diplomatic and military engagement in the world in the last several years suddenly want to like arm Israel to the teeth and watch it crush Hamas and grind its enemies into dust and so forth. So, I mean, what does all this tell us about the state of American politics right now? Do you think these predictably tribal reactions to the war between Israel and Hamas allude to a kind of deeper issue in the American psyche? I do think that there is a sort of deep connection between the state of Israel and, Amer and American culture. And I mean, we're not unique in this way. People all over the world react to events in Israel with greater force than they do. You know, nothing that happens to the Kurds or the Uyghurs uh, or any one of any number, even the Armenians. We had over 100,000 Armenians fleeing their homes in Nagorno-Karabakh in the last month. But the attacks in Gaza have struck a, an even deeper nerve. And again, not just here, but all over the world. There is a uniqueness to the position of the Jewish people in the world for good and for bad. 
and Israel is and will remain an emotive, explosive subject for people all over the world. Uh, just as uh, I think somewhat to their surprise, the Palestinians are now caught up in the sort of glamour of Jewish identity. That is, people who are anti-Semites are pro-Palestinian. People who are anti-American are often pro-Palestinian. People who are anti-capitalist are often pro-Palestinian for reasons that have very little to do with anything that actual Palestinians or Israelis are doing at any particular moment. I mentioned an Ark of a Covenant, which, may I say, is just out in paperback and available at Amazon and finer bookstores everywhere, that years ago I was visiting Belfast in Northern Ireland. I, I read about this in the book. And when you went to see Unionist Republican neighborhoods, you'd often see a Palestinian flag flying. Not you, uh, Sorry, Republican neighborhoods, you'd see the Palestinian flag. You went to Unionist, you'd see the Star of David. Now, why those flags for Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland would have that special appeal is is a little hard to say, but there it is. And you can often, by the way, you can gauge how far to the left or right someone is by their stand on Israel-Palestine issues. So if you go to Germany or anywhere in Europe, really, and you meet someone who thinks that Oh, it's really regrettable, some of Israel's policies on the occupied territories, and it really is unfortunate they should do more for peace. But Israel, the Jewish people have a right to a state, and Israel at the end of the day has the right to defend itself. Okay, this person is almost certainly voting conservative and is pro-NATO and pro-U.S., and then, then you meet somebody who's a little bit more, um, talks less about the Israeli, Jewish right to a state and talks more about the problems of the Palestinians and feels angrier. That's probably a social democrat who maybe accepts NATO but doesn't love the West in quite the same way. And then all the way out on toward the radical fringes, uh, you find that that negative attitudes toward Israel and toward the Jewish people correlate over and over again with negative attitudes toward the United States and toward capitalism. And you find that here in the United States. You know, you college students who are more or less conservatively inclined hope there wouldn't be a humanitarian bloodbath in Gaza when Israel retaliates, but at the same time would think that really they've got to do something. You can't just let something like this go unpunished. And then the people who are out there, you know, from the river to the sea, all of these kinds of chants, screaming in some cases at Jewish students and so on. I don't have to tell you what their attitudes are on tax policy or you know, <laughs> climate you know, change, whole, abortion. Right, right, right. A whole range. Well, I see that Greta Thunberg has now come out as an anti-Israel uh, protester. So it's a it's a fascinating correlation. In fact, these things don't have a lot to do with each other necessarily. You know, it's not really that Israel has bad policy on climate change. But there is some way that, that in the minds of people all over the world, Israel stands for something bigger than itself, which some people love and some people hate, and so do the Palestinians. Was it always like this? I mean, you know, you, you talk in the book about how in, at its inception, Israel was seen as a kind of part of the 
global progressive labor aligned socialist uh, movement, not only I think because its own politics were quasi socialist at the time, but it was seen as a kind of underdog left wing liberal movement. Zionism was at the time. I mean, when, when does that change? When does it flip? Well, I mean, it was it was also, by the way, because Stalin had more to do with Israel gaining independence than Truman did. It was Stalin's shipments of arms that tipped the balance at a time when the U.S. had an embargo on arms to Israel. Uh, and generally speaking, what Stalin thought, the rest of the left found itself in agreement with. I don't know, you know, how it, he must have been such a tremendous genius that 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 he saw to the heart of the matter and everyone spontaneously agreed. Something <laughs> like that, I suppose. But yeah, I you know it begin it changes slowly. Uh, the '67 war had something when Israel is a winner, that has something to do with it. The '73 war, when the United States really for the first time emerges as a close ally slash defender of Israel, that had something to do with it. I mean, for a lot of people in the global left, anything that Henry Kissinger is for must, by definition, be terrible. Uh, but, you know, when Jews were no longer victims, there were other things in Europe, not so much in the U.S. Colonialism in a lot of Europe occupies the same place in the national psyche that racism does in America. And the French, for example, who were Israel's best ally during the first 25 years of Israel's history and gave it the technology for the atom bomb and, and really armed it, uh, the French did this in part as part of their policy to try to hold on to their colony in Algeria. And, you know, there was sort of cooperation against Arab nationalism, so on and so forth. So as the a new post-war generation of French leftists rise up and the 68 riot, you know, riots in, in France were a big part of that, they rejected the way that the, their parents on the left had been supporters of Israel as part of their general sense of we've got a break from that colonial heritage. Now, again, all of this is politics in people's minds because, you know, everyone sort of had this idea, has this idea that Israeli Jews are a bunch of blonde, blue-eyed, Nordic-looking Europeans who are invading and colonizing the Middle East, when in fact, I think at least half of the Israeli population today is descended from people who lived in the Middle East before they moved to Israel. But this notion, this kind of identification of Israel with Western colonialism has a lot to do today with the way the left views this conflict. And so the Palestinians become the symbol for indigenous people everywhere. Uh, if you voted yes on the voice referendum in Australia, the chances are you might be less pro-Israel than some of your neighbors who voted no. And this, this kind of symbolic politics goes everywhere. All right, that does it for the big conversation. Let's end on the tip of the week. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict has never brought out the best in the news media, Walter, and it's been no exception. This go-round, the biggest names in the industry especially have had to change headlines multiple times in a day, issue corrections, retract stories, even fire staff in some cases. So I think our listeners would appreciate knowing how a pundit and historian 
like you consumes the news? What does your daily news diet look like? What subscriptions would you take with you to a desert island? Or would you just watch like MSNBC and Newsmax all day long? You know, I often start by looking at a newsletter that my old college friend John Ellis puts out. Uh, news notes, I think he calls it, and he has another one. News political items. notes. News items. These, these, you know, it costs like a hundred dollars or something a year, but it's uh, it's well worth it. And uh, John sort of scans the news and looks at a lot of different sources, uses some places like Euro Intelligence and so on, and you know, it does a pretty good job, I think, of giving you a sense of what happened and what matters, and it has the links to the stories. But beyond that. Often at night, the night before, I'll look to the uh, London Times. I have a subscription to that because um, their their morning edition comes up at around the time we're going to bed here on the East Coast, so that's a useful thing. I definitely, Wall Street Journal, I look at every day. Um, I also look at the New York Times, um, Financial Times. Those are the three newspapers that I try to look at. You know, I do, I mean, The Economist is is always kind of in the mix. I look at uh, Time and Newsweek, sadly, are nowhere. You know, when I was a kid, if you were uh, if you were an American who was interested in the news, you subscribed to one of the two of them. It's very sad what's happened there. I'm not quite sure where all that went, but these used to be the mainstays of journalism. I do find Twitter useful. Everybody's Twitter experience, or X experience, maybe we should be saying now, uh, is different. But over the years, I feel I'm following some interesting people. Some of them I agree with most of the time. Some of them I never agree with. But I want to know, know how people on different sides are looking at every story. And so so there's some people on my Twitter feed, and I won't say who, I get annoyed every time I read one of their tweets. It's really, how does, oh my goodness, are you really going to go there, you know, et cetera. But, uh, and that, by the way, is some people on the left and some people on the right. But it's important to see how the discourse is shaping, I think. And Twitter remains, I think, the best place. If a news story is breaking in real time, there is still no place that you're going to get more information faster than on Twitter. But the quality is up to you. Are you following people who are trustworthy? Are you paying attention, not just with tweets, but in regular news sources? You know, there's some subjects I'm pretty confident, or some writers at the New York Times, I relax when I'm reading some of them because, you know, they're they're straight shooters. I might not agree with their, you know, the, their take on something, but they're honest, solid, knowledgeable reporters. Their analysis may reflect a certain point of view, but it is grounded in facts. You can learn something. Other times it feels like I'm reading some sort of propaganda rag, you know. Uh, so there's some subjects like environmental stuff, climate change, especially like climate policy. They're just so militantly determined to tell you that, oh, this is good, it's great, it's getting better, and and trying to shape what you think rather than tell you what's happening so that you can think clearly about it. You just can't believe them, and I'm sorry to have to say this. I do think the New York, you know, in the Wall Street Journal is famous for feuds between the opinion section where I write and the uh, news section. But I say that's healthy uh, for, because actually 
news and opinion are different things. And the way I think some publications, no names here, have melded news and opinion so that it's just one sort of seamless web of mush, I don't really think that's that's great journalism. But I think the Wall Street Journal makes a real effort. It, it knows it's writing for business people who need to make decisions and will lose money if they make stupid decisions. So they need facts and they need it quickly and clearly presented. I mean, it's kind of a commercial here, but I, I do think the journal does a pretty good job. All right. That does it for this week. Thanks to our producer, Noam Bloom. Thanks to my co-host, Walter Russell Mead. I'm Jeremy Stern. We'll see you next time. 